0: Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. The show that is so bad, we were going to do one of those year end highlights and review shows, but we couldn't find any highlights. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax. The smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host. Brian Levine Welcome, welcome, welcome It is the Pipes Magazine radio show Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational But always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast And I am your host, Brian Levine Coming to you on the first Tuesday of 2017 Welcome to the new year Alright, so in tonight's show on Pipe Parts i uh, going to start a regularly occurring segment of uh, famous uh Famous people of the past that smoked a pipe. Note, I didn't say famous pipe smokers of the past. I said famous people of the past that smoked a pipe. Uh, So that'll be in Pipe Parts. My guest tonight is uh, the uh, return of Ken Barnes of uh, Cheriton and Upshaw fame. More stories from Ken. Uh, I talked to him over the weekend and recorded this, edited it down as far as I could without trimming out any of the good stuff, so it ran a little long. Uh, but it's a lot of fun, so I get to sit back and listen to that again with you all. Uh, music, mailbag, and, uh, rant all coming up in, uh, tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Alright, for those of you that missed it, um, last Thursday we did a Facebook Live Event, I don't want to call it an event. It was me sitting behind my desk uh talking and chatting. It was interesting to uh try to figure out how to do it. Apparently, Facebook will not let you use anything but a uh, smartphone to broadcast on, and I think they do that so that you can't use any real uh real fancy commercial bumper add in kind of things, so it's just kind of uh you know simple. Uh, But anyway, what was fun about it was uh, people from Australia, people from uh, different parts of the U.S. and Canada chimed in, and uh, at last count, we were closing in on 1,000 views of the video, which is uh, still up on Facebook on my profile, Brian Levine, so if you want to, send me a friend request and uh, check it out. comments just over uh, 340 comments back and forth so a lot of interaction glad you all like that hope it gave you all a just a tiny little break from uh, from the uh, hustle and bustle of the holiday season which is over now and we're all back to normal uh so anyway if you want to check that out i'll leave it up there a little bit longer but then i'll bring it down Lots of good comments in there that I'll be using in uh, future episodes of the Pipes Magazine Radio Show, and yes, I will do another one of those. Uh, don't know when. Maybe try to do it a little bit earlier in a uh, on a weekend day for uh, those in Europe so that they can tune in, or uh, you know, somewhat middle of the day on like a Friday, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, let me know if you uh, if you enjoyed it. I mean, I, I know a lot of people did because it just tons of comments and uh, tons of activity on it so anyway thanks to all who uh, joined in and uh, we'll talk about it more all right let's get the show rolling everybody sit back relax fire up a bowl thank you all for tuning in thank you to the McBaron tobacco company and here we go
1: what are you looking for in a pipe is it the quality of age briar is it a certain shape or finish Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio bolder style try our more colorful 2015 editions as well the exotic cashmere the sultry licoricea and the striking archivaleno red so whatever you're looking for in a pipe know there's a savinelli waiting for you contact your local or online retailer to find your savinelli today
0: Welcome back. All right. So for uh, famous people that smoked a pipe, um, remember, when you go back to the uh, to the turn of the uh, 20th century, so the late 1800s all the way until like the mid-1950s, 1960s, it was very common for a lot of men to smoke pipes. Uh, less common was for women, but there were some. So not everyone had all these great writings about their... Uh, life with pipes like uh like jm barry or uh were identified with the pipe because uh it, it was just something they did it's kind of like if you talk to a 1980s or 90s celebrity that smoked cigarettes they wouldn't you know have long uh long pontifications about the wonderful majesty of the cigarette or the cigar or whatever it was that they did it was just something that they did uh but I thought it'd be fun to kind of uh, you know every, every couple of weeks grab two of these people that smoked pipes and talk about what they did, and the first uh, the first one is thanks to Dan Locklear who pointed out an article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Edwin Hubble, of course, the uh, one who the big telescope is named after, uh, turns out Hubble was born in eighteen in uh, eighteen eighty nine, and uh, kind of bounced around the. Uh, bounced around the middle of America for a while, but what I found interesting was that, uh, his, his father, uh, Hubble was, uh, was quite an athlete and, uh, you know, played basketball and played, uh, football in high school, but his, uh, his father wanted him to, uh, you know, not do the athletics and not do the, uh, not do the science stuff. His father wanted him to get a real job, and so, uh, Hubble spent. Uh, uh, Hubble went off and got a law degree uh, from uh, the University of Chicago, uh, which was a, a bachelor of science. Then was one of the first uh, Rhodes Scholars of Queen's College of Oxford, where he studied jurisprudence, and uh, later added literature and Spanish, and earning his uh, master's degrees in those. Uh, <laughs> Hubble returned back to the U.S., where uh, for a while he was a, a dutiful son who, uh, despite his intense interest in astronomy since boyhood, uh, you know, took his law degree and uh, ended up teaching. He was teaching high school. Uh, in, uh, he spent time in the Army. Then the minute his father died, he went back to school and, uh, studied at the studied astronomy. Uh, he went on a lifelong pipe smoker, uh, went on to discover that the universe was bigger than our own Milky way. And, uh, what I think is cool. And one thing that will never be named after me is, uh, he's got a crater on the moon named after him. And, uh, besides that, he's got that big orbiting, uh, Hubble telescope. So Edwin Hubble, the other one, Frank Capra, movie director, writer, creator. Uh, Frank Capra was, uh, was a highly patriotic award winning film director, producer, writer, uh, his, uh, he won three Oscars as best director, uh, yeah, including Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And then the, uh, Uh, Then he spent time in the war, and he did a lot of propaganda films for the war, including the Why We Fight series. Uh, The funny thing that I found in doing the research and reading off of Wikipedia for Frank Capra was that uh, after World War II, Capra's career declined as his later films, such as It's a Wonderful Life, uh, was... Called a was basically a flop, which was critically derided as being simplistic and overly idealistic. In and then it turned out to be one of the two films of his that's on the uh, top 100 by the American Film Institute. So, uh, what happened in Capper's life was after the uh, after the times of war, he wanted to go back to doing. Uh, he wanted to go do movies that were more positive, upbeat, happier, you know, happier, simple stories because. He had seen some of the uh, issues of wars and uh, didn't like them Uh, but Capra all most of his life was a uh, lifelong pipe smoker and I can only imagine that uh, you know sitting there he's puffing his pipe and writing those along Uh, Capra was born in uh, 1897 in uh, Italy and then uh, ended up passing away at age 94 in California Both uh, two great pipe smokers, two uh, Capra and uh, Hubble, two people that have left their mark on the planet for a long time. All right, in just a minute, the conversation I had with uh, Ken Barnes.
2: This is Internet Radio. It's Saturday morning at the crack of dawn. The cool chill of night still clings to the air as the sun slowly rises over the misty surface of the lake. You've waited all week for just this moment. You know that today is going to be epic. Everything is here to ensure perfection. From the nice full cooler packed with your favorite suds, to the other empty one, waiting to be filled with piles of freshly caught fish. Reaching into your pocket, you pull out your trusty briar and fill it with your favorite tobacco, aptly named Great Outdoors. It is the perfect smoke for moments like these, a strike, a flash, and your tobacco is lit. As the delicious mixture ignites and swirls over your tongue and the deep, rich burlies with a hint of sweet Virginia dance in your mouth, you smile. Casting your first line into the water, the slowly widening ripples begin to stir as you feel the first bite of the day tug at your line. Now you know it truly is going to be a good day and a perfect time to enjoy the simple yet unmatchable pleasures of the great outdoors. Great Outdoors is another fine quality pipe tobacco manufactured by Sudliff, America's oldest tobacco company, and is available at fine tobacconists everywhere. Enjoy your perfect day by purchasing a tin today.
0: Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and uh, joining us pre-recorded because of the uh, distance and time change and all that fun stuff, but we're going back to England. And uh, Ken Barnes was nice enough to come back and join us, and uh, we'll talk more stories and uh, history of English Pipes and all that fun stuff. So, Ken, welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show.
3: Oh, brilliant. Yeah, nice to speak to you again, Brian.
0: So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's been almost a year, and uh, I would imagine I've seen you've been a little more active on the forums and uh, chatting with people and going back and forth. Um, I have just a few people I want to ask you about in particular, and maybe you can, we can start off with, do uh, you have any, uh, any stories about Herman Lane that would be uh, <laughs> suitable for the airways and uh, interesting for our listeners?
3: well um yeah actually um so much has happened since our last um the last time i spoke with you and um possibly due to um that that interview some um at the beginning of last year i think um <clears throat> my mother told me an amazing story um, of how uh, we actually my father and myself got into the uh, pipe industry um during the war, my mother's German and her her father was um, the sales director for a, a very large tobacco company called Weinsma yeah. in Hamburg. And um, during the war, uh, Herman Lane was actually uh, being Jewish, he was um, feeling really threatened by the <clears throat> Nazi takeover, as it were. Yeah. And um, he needed to get out of Germany. And my grandfather um, was a very close friend of his, and my grandfather um, offered or agreed to um, look after all his properties. Wow! When when he left Germany to go to the United States, so in other words, intellectual properties and possibly property, um, you know, houses and things. Um, which my grandfather did. And and that is where the whole thing came, where Herman Lane sort of reciprocated that. <laughs> I mean, my, my grandfather was one of those people, one of the only people that Herman Lane could trust at the time. And so as a reciprocation, when my father left the army, um, quite early um, in the 60s, um, Herman Lane said there was a position going at Chariton's, and that's how the whole thing started. And I didn't know this until this year, really.
0: Wow, so if it wasn't for your grandfather helping out Herman Lane, your father wouldn't have probably ever gotten into the pipe business. and
3: Yeah, absolutely. You,
0: you would have been selling golf clubs.
3: Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Great. Great. Did you? Yeah, and, and also due to this uh, last radio um, interview that you did with me, um, I know that um, the vice president of Lane Limited, Dick Demiola, um got in touch with me as well. <laughs> and we've been um, communicating via, you know, electronically. Yeah. And um and also, you know, he sends his best to my mother. And, you know, and it's sort of bringing people back closer together again, which I think is brilliant. It,
0: it, it's amazing. One of the few things that has come out of the Internet and computers is that we can now easily communicate across uh, across continents and uh, and just email back and forth.
3: Yeah, absolutely. No and no, I mean I, so many things have happened since I last um spoke with you um, i mean pete Pete Siegel, who was my agent at Marble Arch and his wife Debbie, yeah. came to England and stayed for a week and i yeah. haven 't seen them for twenty eight years and um, that was amazing and they also went down to visit my mother we We went to also he said, "Why don't we go and visit barry jones and i I felt I felt sort of uh oh, I'd love to, but I didn't know how Barry was feeling about it, so Pete phoned Barry um from my home here and said, Hi, you know, we're in england and and Barry was sort of quite overwhelmed, I think, and then he said i we're staying with Ken." And he'd like to really like to see you, how about it and Barry was yeah, sure, and so <laughs> we we went to um Barry still lives about four miles from the f from the um Tilsett James upshaw factory and um we went to visit him, and we spent a day in the lovely summer sun in his garden, reminiscing on old times and things, and I have photos of me. And I look so overwhelmed. I'm almost in tears. Um, it was a very emotional thing. And since then, I've spent a day with Barry. We played a round of golf um, some months ago. And I speak to him quite often on the phone, up to an hour at a time. <laughs> and I always have so many questions to ask him because I'm getting quite interested in, in the Chariton Days, you know, in the sort of
0: the late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, so maybe we need to get Barry on the show too, and uh, and have. Him well, on. the
3: interesting thing is Barry. Um, Barry, uh, when I say, "Oh, there are some," you know, I'm on a forum and this and that. Barry really doesn't like this publicity and, and all that. And and I said, but it's not you, you know. He thinks it's a bit sort of why are people. You know, thinking so highly of me, and I said, "It's not. It's your craftsmanship. Yeah, it's it's the craft that you do rather than you." And he felt more comfortable with that. Um, I've I've actually started making a whole um, list of questions for him because I want to write down a lot of this stuff um, and possibly, you know, create a, a sort of published account. Of those days from 1959, when he first started working with Reuben Chariton, and the fascinating things I've I've learned this year um, already, you know.
0: Uh, yeah, we'd love to. We'd love to have that, or you know, at least have it published and out. Um, did you have any interactions with Reuben, or was he uh, retired and gone by then? No,
3: my my father had. Um, I think he died in 1962. Uh, my father had, I think, some connection with his wife. Um, but um, no, I didn't. So, so Barry started there in 1959. And, um, and uh, you know, Barry said, yeah, and Ruby. I said, oh, Ruby, is that? He said, no, that's what we called him. His nickname <laughs> was Ruby. Um, I said, what did he call you, Barry? And he said, nothing. I said, what would, I mean, Mr. Jones or Barry or, he said, no, nothing ever. <laughs> he just came up to me and just, you know, said what he needed to say. And it was a, quite amazing that sort of um, time, you know, just to go back in that that time of the 50s and and how the owner would, would sort of respond to his employees. It was quite interesting. <laughs> Um, Barry Barry did recount a time when um, after he'd worked there for a year, he became so expert. And, and in the lunch hour, the others would go out to lunch. Um, he would sit with his sandwiches in front of uh, Reuben Chariton's lathe where he was turning handmade, you know, orthodox models of um, by hand, you know, the straight grain blocks. Wow. And he would just watch him and watch him and watch him um, during his lunch hour. And then one day, Mr. Sheridan said, look, you can turn the shank, you know, not the bowl part, the, the shank part of the pipe. So he left a few for Barry, and that's how he got started. Um, there, there's also amazing, I, I love this, as of another time, he was explaining in 1959, the customs came, you know, the customs officials came to visit Reuben. Yeah. And um, he uh, Barry answered the door and let them in. And he wasn't sure why they were there. And they had these boxes, um, you know, cardboard boxes full of stuff. And um, he thought, Oh, why are they here? You know, they're the customs from London docks. And they'd go into Reuben's office. and And these boxes contained synthetic amber. Which were being exported to England. And the customs wanted to know if there was any pure amber being smuggled in the boxes as well. And Reuben Chariton was the only guy in the east end of London who actually could tell the difference between um, amber and amberoid or amberine or whatever. And so he used to sit there and go through all these boxes with the customs and tell them, right, that's Amber, that's not, that's Amber, and he he separated all four of them. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it?
0: <laughs> so, he, so Ruben actually had his hands in all aspects of the business and was heavily involved on the floor.
3: Well, yeah, and I think the customer, because they were working with Amber for nearly a hundred years since his father started, you know, and I suppose in that part of London he was the one to go and see, you know, to check for, you know, authenticity or whatever. (laughs) Um, But Barry also taught. I saw the first Chariton freehand, you know, freehand, freehand, made in 1959. Wow. And Barry told me the story, what happened. Um, I mean, is this okay? Yeah, this this is great. Yeah.
2: Um, Mr.
3: Chariton had, um, especially after the war, and I think one or two people who are knowledgeable about Barling also said this was the same. Um, If there was some uh, bowls he was working, you know, half made pipes he was working on, and they developed flaws he would put them in a box under his bench. And then if if the briar supply dried up, he had some stuff to rework, to work on. <laughs> so he would build up a little stock under his bench. And one lunchtime, Barry saw the very large um, bent, the classical catalogue-shaped bent. There was a large one, which was, I think it was a 40, oh, I've forgotten the shape number now. Um, and it had a little floor in the front, and Barry would sit next to Joe Nicholson, who was the sandpaperer for Ruben Chariton at the time, and who taught me uh, later on in the early 70s, and he cut into that um, bowl, Barry did in his lunch hour, and tried to sort of eliminate the floor, and he cut more and more into it and um developed what now is called a cup and saucer oh, Wow! and he he made it beautiful and he and they were both thinking oh that's amazing and and jones said go and show mr chariton go and show him and so barry finished it off and took it to um mr chariton's office and Mr. Chariton looked at it and went, hmm, and he changed out of, in the office in front of Barry. He took his um, overall off or his foreman's coat and put his jacket on or his, his, yeah, his jacket and tie and said, um, right, I'm taking this down to the Chariton shop in Whitcomb Street to Mr. Lewington, who was the manager at the time. Um, I, I like it. I like it, and um, <laughs> and so he took it down to uh, Whitcomb Street to the Chardin shop, and Mister Lewington said, "Oh, we can sell these. They're amazing." And um, and that was it. That was the beginning of the cup and saucer one, which people often call it. You know the.
0: Yeah. Now, if you haven't seen a cup and saucer Chariton, it. It looks like a bent. It looks like a, a, a traditional apple-shaped bowl sitting on top of a, a base, and it's all cut in one piece of wood. Uh, do a yeah. Google search, and you'll see them. They show they're rare, but they're uh, photographed a lot. Uh, yeah. Do you have any stories in particular about Desmond Souter and going to those to that shop?
3: Well, yeah, I used to. Um, I mean, they were. They were really our uh, first, in, in James Upshaw time, they, they were the first um, shops that purchased <clears throat> our better end James Upshaws before we really had any uh, distribution in the States. So um, I would go up on a Saturday morning because it was quite easy to park. Um, Desmond had three shops. He had um, one in Piccadilly, he had one in Russell Square, and he had one in Mount Street. The one in Mount Street used to be Elgin's and Elgin's was a shop and Winston Churchill had his flat above Elgin's. (laughs) And and he used to buy, uh, when he was younger, he had his flat above Elgin's and he used to buy his cigars there. So it was a sort of cigar shop, um, the one in Mount Street, I think 106 Mount Street, I've forgotten. and Desmond used to run Mount Street, and his brother in law Norman used to run the one in piccadilly and um and actually, I remember one day um taking i would take twenty four thirty six uh nice james upshaw you know straight grains pea grains, you know really nice grain stuff and um, Norman would just look through. He wouldn't select. He'd say, yeah, thank you. We'll take those three boxes, you know, 36 pieces and whatever. And one day I was sitting there chatting to him, and, and a guy came in, American, and um, bought uh, two cartons of Marlboro or something. And um, he seemed like a nice guy. and uh, And we were talking away. So, so yeah, after talking with him, I, I, uh, he left and, and, you know, he's talking about sort of his life. And I said, oh, what a really lovely guy, isn't he? And he said, well, did you know who it was? And I said, no, he said, that was Robert Mitchum. Mm-hmm. And what a pleasure. You know, <laughs> because I didn't know who it was, I was actually being myself. Yeah. And, um, and they gave him permission to be himself. And uh, I don't know. And I've met a, a few people like this along the way, uh, you know, in the Davidoff shop. Roger Moore used to come in to yeah. buy his cigars from Edward Sahakian, who, who who owns it and still owns it today. And um, yeah, I used to I used to meet quite a few people.
4: That's
0: uh,
3: a... you know sort of uh, people who've, of of um, you know like actors and well-known people, high-profile people, as it were.
0: It's a perfect spot for us to take a break. We'll be back All with right. Ken in just a minute.
4: I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell and Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco, expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness deep flavor and delightful aroma that makes autumn evening so well loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend cornell and deal pipe tobacco company it's a labor of love contact your local or online retailer for information
0: Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, Ken, last time you were on you talked about the uh the kind of stodgy London uh retailers and what was it can you describe what it was like for a uh, for a pipe for a pipe buyer to walk into the store and how the pipes were presented to them or how they were shown different pipes?
3: Well, um When you say stodgy, I'm not sure. You mean that the the very old, early 70s? Yeah. Um, um, I remember working at the Jarrison store in 1970. I was 17, so 1972. And uh, Mr. Harding was the manager. Wow, he was one of those really old-fashioned retailers, you know. And... um, I I don't know, it was just so bizarre working with him. Never Mm -hmm. smiled, never. Only when the customer came in, he'd put on this rather broad toothpaste smile. (laughs) Um, But um, that was very strange culturally, and how that changed over the years um, to become much more um, relaxed, you know, relaxed environment. and I do remember, I think I may have mentioned last time, walking over from there in my lunch hour to the Astley shop and yeah. introducing myself. And um, and that was still, Paul Bentley's father was quite stiff, uh, you know, starchy um, type. Um, but I think that was the norm in those days. No, well, I... When I was selling to the London stores, um, it was much more uh, relaxed, laid back. But obviously... Um, when they saw the straight grades I had, I didn't have to actually sell anything. I just opened the boxes, and they go, "Wow!" And then that was it, really. I mean, I just sort of say hello and chat about things. So it's very easy, easy way to sell, really.
0: Now, in in the late '60s, early '70s, you had Astleys that had their own store, and they sold their own brand. Uh, the yeah. the Cheriton store had its own store and sold its own brand. Uh, Dunhill still had a couple of uh couple of shops around London that sold Dunhills exclusively. Um, where would a pipe smoker go if they wanted to look at multiple brands?
3: Um, they would probably go um, to Tasman Sousa um you know in piccadilly and mount street and russell square also davidoff um whilst they had davidoff pipes they also had james upshaw i think they sold dunhill's there um a few Savonelli's and peterson's um also um um oh, what were they called um harry horowitz um well, they're in Burlington Arcade, yeah, Sullivan Powell yeah. in Burlington Arcade. That was a lovely shop. Harry Horowitz was the manager there. He loved Upshaw. Oh, he, and he was such an amazing salesperson. But he was so passionate. You don't have to sell. You know, if you're passionate about something, it's not about having to push a product. Um, he, he used to have all different brands. There was then round the corner, there was Simmons in Burlington Arcade. I don't think I sold to Simmons. I popped in there occasionally. Um, and round the corner there was Fox, Fox and Sons. It was Mr. Anderson, the manager. This is all like recalling that, yeah. Mr. Anderson. And he would have, I think that was actually the old, could that have been, that's Albemarle Street, I think. That could have been the old Peterson shop, I'm not sure. Um, but Fox and Sons, there was also Lewis's in St. James's, um, that was a great shop and I've forgotten the guy's name, um, but you're asking me stuff from 29 years ago, (laughs) um, Cowley, um, that they owned it, um, his father and the son. And, um, there they were, they, I used to see a lot of very high-profile people going in and out of that store. Um, but they would sell all brands. And um, Benson & Hedges in Bond Street, and that's where Philip Shervington, Shervington um, he was the man, and he still now works at Fox & Sons, Philip, and he wow. was the manager at Benson and & Hedges. And um, that was sort of it there was in in the city near Barbican. It's called the London Wall. there was Thurgood's Walter Thurgood, and that was where I sold my first gross twelve thousand uh said pipes. That was the first order I ever had in hmm. nineteen seventy eight um i I brought them in and I opened them, they said, "We'll take them, and that was it and uh, my father was so happy because that was invoice number 0001 (laughs) um i don't think that shop's open anymore though and obviously a lot of these have fallen by the wayside you know yeah but i i do know and amazingly what came about from this last interview was rick newcomb came over with his wife carol um on holiday they they came to, to Penzance, and they came to visit me and um, he spent a day with me here and wrote an amazing article, and then went back to London and um, visited Davidoff and um, Fox and Sons and um, they were he was talking with them about me and and they were saying some very amazing things you know and how amazing <laughs> and how such good fond memories of, of doing business
0: with me, which I felt I was very touched by. Well, let's go back to back to Upshaw. Um, I don't think we talked about this last time, but was there a difference between the pipes that were marked Upshaw and the pipes that were marked Tillshead, or were they the same brand just letting everybody... No, no, no.
3: We, we didn't have rejects or seconds and, what we, and we didn't sandblast any at the time up to now. Then we started doing some carved upshells, which had just one or two. The grain wasn't out staggering or it had one or two spots, sand spots on the outside of the bowl. Um, but what we used to do was the upshells were absolutely clean. The P grade were in a light walnut, but they may have one or two sand spots, but they were clean pipes. Um, the till set were actually our seconds, which we didn't fill. And the tilled set natural were just, uh, you could see very lightly um, flawed, you know, on the outside, but we left it there. And uh, then we had a till set, a red finish, a burgundy finish, which was slightly more. Um, it had a couple of flaws in it, but um, that would be sort of not hidden, as in um, secret, but it was darkened slightly, so they wouldn't sort of jump out at you, as it were. And um, that was it. So the the Tullens were our seconds, really.
0: So that and was... all, our,
3: and we weren't sort of trying to pretend. They're from another because the shapes were, you know, you could see they well. Right. People who knew about pipes could see they came from our factory, and and on the back, on the reverse side of the shank of James Upton, there was Till Fed England made by hand anyway, <laughs> and and on the seconds it just says Till Fed England. Now, as things went on, uh, what the the new. Owners, when Barry sold the company to Morty and Karen, yeah, um, what happened after that, I don't know. But I know in the era where I was working there, that's that was the sort of grading, segregation, or grading. Um, that's how we did it.
0: What did the uh, the P and the S stand for, and how did you pick those as gradings?
3: Well, well, actually, they're all roughly from. Um, The Chariton, the P was sort of, we we were trying to do a walnut. We thought it was something like the Perfection. Okay. The Chariton Perfection. The S, I don't know. We just then got into letters because we didn't really want to start. Um, You know, at this time, my father, people say my father started Tilted Pipe Company. Actually, Dunhills told him that uh, he had to agree in a contract that he would not start a manufacturing, pipe manufacturing company for at least four years, I think. My mother told me this this year. (laughs) There was a disclaimer there in his contract when Dunhills bought Charitons. Yeah. Um, So so it was actually my mother um, and I were the main shareholders and Barry, and we gifted Barry shares. So so that's how it sort of started. But what at the time, what we didn't want to do was to start bringing out names, which was sort of quite chariton and things. So we just did it, you know, P-grade. So the P was actually not the finish. The P was sort of equivalent to a distinction, although it wasn't in that distinction orange-type finish. And... Um, The B grade was sort of a bit more like an executive. Um, The G grade was more like selected supreme, maybe. And then, you know, and then it went on like that. The E grade, originally I thought E for executive, but actually it it ended up, it was a much higher grade. It was more like a, you know, um, coronation type graining. And then X and double X. Well, we just called them that. I don't know quite. There's my father, myself, and Barry. I remember where we were standing. And we just had little bits of paper. We took the first 40 we had made and we grouped them in different grades. You know, we sort of selected them. And then we just put bits of paper, torn out bit of paper with a letter under each row. And that was it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so it wasn't a real uh, scientific method.
3: No. And on reflection, I mean, we could have been a bit more creative. But actually, it's not about, it wasn't at the time about trying to sell, um, you know, the name of the grade. It was more, they were the grading of the grain and the shape and the, you know, so it wasn't as important. And we had to keep remembering which ones were which, you know, when we were doing the selection. Is the G, the G, no, the E's higher than the G, you know, at the beginning, it was quite interesting.
0: (laughs) Uh, When you were at Cheriton, who did the final grading of the pipes?
3: right well grading happens in the bowl stage where you're um uh, but we call it selection the selection is at the end when you're selecting which grades they fall into In a way um funnily it was dennis marshall was the production manager at charitons and uh maureen was his was his uh, assistant really and Maureen used to do a lot of the selecting and also a guy called Chera Singh who was Indian his his uncle was actually worked um, in the uh, sizing the briar right at the beginning of the process and worked in the say in the turning room um, where they did the machine turning very close to Barry actually and Mr Singh, his uncle, was the sort of selector of wood and um and Chera, his nephew, was did the final stamping. I remember that. But mm-hmm. Maureen on the very high grades it was Maureen and Dennis. They they would bring the trays into Dennis Marshall's office and they would sit there and grade.
0: Wow, you and, know
3: the uh, anything from executive selected, supreme, you know coronation and achievement, you know royal achievement, crown achievement, that sort of stuff.
0: Were there were there times where you know a batch just didn't have a really high end, and they just didn't grade anything up that high, or did they uh, did they grade the entire batch and then just say, okay, these this is the best of that batch, and break it down that way?
3: Well, it's really interesting. Um, The other day I I was on the forum and I saw i I don't know, I think it was a Supreme or or something quite high in the Chariton range. And I went, wow, it looked quite poor. It looked like a sort of really nice executive. And I thought, Supreme, wow. (laughs) But then I thought the pressure that, you know, Herman Lane was putting on um, the production, on Dennis Marshall, my father, and how easy it is when you have a really good run of Briar, you know, it's just from a particular area and and it's just sort of just so much grain coming through. And then suddenly that all that dips and there's Herman Lane, we want more Supremes, and always, you know, <laughs> banging the table. And, and the briar just isn't running as, it's not as creamy as it was a couple of weeks ago. Then, you know, what do you do, I, I suppose? So the, the human a- aspect of this is, I don't know, well, we haven't got any, and, uh, you know...
4: <laughs> yeah yeah you... i i
3: find it quite interesting now on reflection, like sometimes on ebay there's there was a nineteen fifty 1950, um nineteen fifty nine supreme which was the highest quality at the time um in a new market shape a fifty three or something whatever it is and um and it's a peach it's a really lovely pipe um, and then I see, I followed the sort Supremes from the late 60s, early 70s, and there, there are some beautiful ones. And I know the wood came from Arta, the Arta Company, in the Pindu Mountains, because I can see that it, the finish is, it's a very white briar and full of grain and very lightweight, very porous. And that's probably the best stuff, you know, around at the time. And... And so, yeah, I've, I've seen some real discrepancies over the years. You know, looking at certain pipes, dating them, and just seeing that. And and it is a human thing, though, to grade. You know.
0: <laughs> it's. Uh, I think any Sheraton collector will tell you that if you uh, if you look around, you'll find some. You'll find some examples of some pipes that were. Undergraded for quality and then you'll find some that were overgraded for on the quality depending yeah. on the time of the year.
3: And 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 also with the upshore. I mean we I used to know that can't be a B because look, it's got a tiny bit of bra a little bit of wide grain on God. Looking back on it, I've seen some on ebay the earlier because i was too scared to drop the quality you know and all that if in doubt Mm -hmm. don't you know and um i think i probably you know did myself or we did ourselves through some of my perfectionistic which is really unhelpful in in some parts of it you know but hey ho as socrates said there are no mistakes only lessons
0: and, and as your father said, focus on quality, then quality, then quality, then quality, and maybe
2: quantity.
3: Yeah, and a bit of quantity there, and that's the old lane thing, you know. I mean, I, I tell you something, Brian. Since our last interview, I've met so many, you know come in contact with so many people, and one one girl who I'd I I used to know in Paris forty four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um got in touch because she just put my name in pipes and and the article came up and the <laughs> interview and and so many people have been coming my way and some people say well have you ever thought of making some pipes and um i talked with barry about this just making a limited edition but not not upshells and not charitons I, uh, you know well obviously there that's the schooling um and he seems quite up for it. And, and in the last nine months, I've bought um, some incredibly expensive, amazing blocks of plateau. I've got 52 blocks, which I bought from different sawmills from Macedonia to um, Italy to around all the Mediterranean countries. And I'm actually looking at some here, and they are, but they are incredibly expensive from the sort of um, five pounds a block um, days when I was working at Upshaws. Yes. we are now 55 pounds a block, you know, but these are superb blocks. And then I was looking at some coronations earlier, and these, these are incredible grain. I mean, I, I get up in the morning and I look at them, <laughs> and it just inspires me. I can't wait to cut them. So Barry and I may be just going to make um, a limited edition of some superb straight grains.
0: So we might see some uh, some Barnes and Jones pipes on the market.
3: Yeah, yeah. And somebody said the other day they called them charups. <laughs> Have you heard of that?
0: Those are those, are those little uh, cupid yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I tell you what it was on on one of the forums. It was on a um, a supreme charity. I think it was that new market. Uh, it was a thread on the uh, pipe smokers forum, and um, somebody I I know I, I've sort of talked with a lot put on the uh, a centerfold photo. He posted it on on this thread <laughs> of uh, Carlo was. Um, it's a centrefold of some chariton-free hands from the late 60s, early 70s. I mean, the book was published in 1974. So. And these just inspired me. I mean, you know, I remember them well. I remember Joan Nicholson, how she used to take Barry's work, and he would leave stuff for her to a little bit more... Of the Briar when he turned it so she could work her magic, and they look amazing—a real, the original heyday era of Chariton Freehands. <laughs> uh,
0: Ken, are we going to okay. see you? Are we going to see you here in the U.S. at all?
3: Well, I'm I'm not sure about that. I don't do a lot of traveling these days. Um, I can't promise anything.
0: Uh, in that case, when when I get to England, I'll have to give you a call and uh, make the trip all the way out west to see you.
3: Yeah, I mean, actually, one thing is I I, I have access now to a pipe maker's workshop. And he said I can use it, where, well, Barry and I can use it whenever we want. And um, it's really tempting. I've also, what I'm going to do, though, is I bought some really high-quality vulcanite rod to Ooh. go with these fifty pieces. And um uh we're gonna really spend time I mean, I've we've never made pipes for fun and for you know, like really just I've I have looked at these blocks I know each block intimately now. <laughs> <laughs> I've made friends with each one and I know I can't wait to cut these, you know, (laughs) but um, it's about access and Barry said, well, yeah, we could, you know, we could just spend some time and have some fun doing it and spend time doing it rather than being on a tight schedule for production and all that. but then put handcuffs on all of them. I mean this I think they're going to look really nice anyway i'm quite excited, and i 'm not here to publicize that. It was just it's fifty pieces, and it 's for people who are just into that sort of thing. but yeah, it's sort of Jones Barnes production
0: The best part of it is it sounds like you're doing well and you're excited and uh and happy yeah. and that's and that 's what matters.
3: Yeah, and, um, you know, and it's thanks to things like the, the, the forum here and, um, you know, and Rick Newcomb and yourself and that have sort of brought me together with so many different people now. And um, I don't know, I just, you know, I'm amazed.
0: Well, Ken, we're glad to have you back on, glad to hear all as well. Uh, let us know when those pipes are uh, ready. We'd love to see them. Thank you again for joining us. I won't torture you at the fast five final questions. I'll just say, uh, you know what, it, it's always wonderful to hear your stories and uh, can't wait to see those pipes.
3: Brilliant. All right, thanks, Brian.
0: We'll be back in just a minute. <laughs>
2: Internet radio.
0: We are back, and uh, I'd say listening to that again when uh, when Ken was talking about coveting those uh, those blocks of briar that he bought, and he can't wait, and he can't wait to cut into them. I was thinking, man, if you're if you're a really good friend of his or someone that he really covets and loves, uh, he'd be kind of like Sweeney Todd. Um, all right. Anyway, uh, can't wait to see those pipes. Uh, for music, Father. Hines. Earl Hines uh, did a uh, Four Jazz Giants. Earl Hines plays tribute to W.C. Handy, Hoagie Carmichael, Louis Armstrong, and uh, this one is Georgia on my mind. Hines, a musician and uh, pipe smoker, as well as the uh, uh, Louis Armstrong, occasional pipe smoker as well. There is a message for you. Quickly through the
2: mailbag,
0: in response to last week's show with John Ferraro, Neil K. writes, I just wanted to share about some gifts I got this year. First ordered by me from Santa, a nice little Hilson sled pipe, nice grain. Second was three tins of Seattle Pipe Club blends, the first time trying. Uh, the pipe and tobaccos were specials by uh, pipes and cigars that I couldn't pass up. Oh, the pipes and tobaccos were special. Uh, okay, there we go. The Hilson was 49 bucks. Yeah, not a bad price. Uh, then I received my first gift pipe from a non-pipe smoker. My in-laws really impressed me. First, they gave me some Cubans they picked up while on a cruise, which is now legal to bring back in. Uh, the Stogies are not that impressive or uh, Cuban, but it's the thought that counts. Uh, they also gave me a Leonessa bent billiard with a receipt from a local B&M. The grain is not great, but I decided to keep it for sentimental worth. I've never heard of Leonessa, but so far it's a good smoker. It has a vulcanite stem, which has been refreshing. It seems most of my pipes are acrylic stemmed. Both pipes are under 60 bucks each, but good smokers. Uh, my very first pipe was a Christmas present about 25 years ago. My friend and I decided to buy each other pipes. I usually only smoke it at Christmas time, but not even every Christmas. It was Christmas time when I went to see the first Hobbit movie and decided I needed to smoke my pipe more often. I'm a five to seven time a week pipe enthusiast now. My pipe journey, along with the influence of Bing Crosby, makes Christmas and pipes forever joined in my memory, so I'm very pleased with my in law's gifts. I like this episode's interview and would like to hear more from uh, non-profit participants as a non-pipe making pipe smoker it's nice to just hear from people who enjoy the hobby it's nice to hear their pipe journey and how pipes came into it Uh, from a few episodes ago ashtrays the ashtray i use inside is one of those wooden pipe stands with a glass ashtray in the middle i think i picked it up from a thrift store i refinished it and bought a new glass ashtray and stuck a cork pipe knocker in it it looks nice and it's functional for the patio and the garage, I bought uh, pottery plates that go under uh, potted plants and epoxy-glued cork knockers and cheap plastic stands. Not the folding kind, but the clear sort of spoon-shaped ones. I've had them a few years, and the epoxy holds up in the weather. If I happen to break one, no big deal. That's not a bad idea. Thanks, Neil, for writing that. I appreciate it. Uh, Casey Ghost writes, Good Lord, this is getting silly. A fourth straight interview with someone I've never heard of. I must admit that John has a wonderful collection of pipes. He also has a number of interesting stories to tell. Good show. Thank you very much. Uh, Birdseye says, hi, Brian. Some thoughts about the show and future content? I'm just going to throw it all out there for pipe parts. Maybe you could do short bios on famous pipe smokers of the past and their connections to our habits with the pipe. I'd like to be able to find it, but as I said, there's not a lot of information on these people with the pipes. It's just they happen to be pipe smokers. Um, I liked the history of Tobacco Timeline. Maybe is, maybe there's something more to delve into there. For interviews, I'd like to hear interview about some more of the uh, pipe-centric shops in the U.S. and abroad, like you did with Mylan Tobacco and Peretti's. Maybe you could interview some of those owner-managers to give us ideas of where these shops are located if when we will be traveling in those areas i know it may not always be easy to get interviews but i personally would prefer not to hear back-to-back interviews with pipe makers it tends to get a bit redundant and would be better if spread out throughout the year uh let me just interject here that um yes i do try to shift it up however timing becomes an issue and people want to hear about pipe makers uh, they want to hear from pipe makers. That seems to be the number one request and comment. Anyway, uh, Birdseye goes on to write: For sound quality, I know everyone is not up to speed on technology, but if there is an option to interview via Skype, it would be much better. A, it would be a much better listening experience. For this last show, I had to turn the volume up quite a bit while in the car. I have to do this often with your interviews, but this time it was the whole show. Uh, let me, uh, you know, this is running long tonight, but you know what, what the heck? Um, uh, let me just say this, uh, what, uh, Birdseye, I'm wondering what, uh, what player are you using to play it back on? Because I record them and set all the outgoing levels all the same. So when everything's set to, when everything's gone live, it's all set at the same level um, I'm wondering why you're getting a dip in it. And I'm wondering if it's not the, uh, software, uh, in regards to Skype. So the decision was made. Not everybody has Skype and therefore I didn't want everything to sound. I didn't want the Skype ones to sound different than the other ones. I wanted everything to sound the same and worked really hard to get that same level of sound quality for each person. Um, wish everybody in the world had, uh, had uh, high-quality condenser microphones and uh, could do that, but uh, Skype can be sometimes an issue. Anyway, finally, I will let you know uh, that I generally fast-forward through an interview with a foreign interviewee if their accent is too strong. Between the difficult accent and the sound quality, it's just not enjoyable. All that being said, I never miss a show. I understand it's not easy to produce a show like this, and I was skeptical about the show's longevity when it first started. I'm glad you proved me wrong. Happy New Year, Nelson. Nelson, Happy New Year to you, and uh, thanks for all the comments. I I do appreciate them. Uh, let's see. Al says, I had not heard of John, but loved every minute of this interview. I don't always appreciate the music selections, but I enjoyed the Larry Carlton song so much that I bought the CD in Amazon. There we go. And the best one, Voorhees says, Happy New Year, Kevin and Brian. I wish you both the best, and we wish you both the best. All right. Uh, in just a minute, rant time, but right now, a little bit of fun. According to a recent nationwide survey, more doctors smoke camels than any other
2: cigarette. Three leading independent research organizations asked this question of 113,597 doctors What cigarette do you smoke, doctor? The brand named most was Camel. Now, you probably enjoy rich, full flavor and cool mildness in a cigarette just as much as doctors do. And that's why, if you're not a Camel smoker now, try a Camel on your T-Zone. That's T for taste and T for throat, your true proving ground for any cigarette. See if Camel's rich flavor of superbly blended choice tobaccos isn't extra delightful to your taste. See if Camel's cool mildness isn't in harmony with your throat. See if you two don't say camels suit my T-zone to a T.
0: Hard buns and cold butter. Yep. I feel like I've complained about this before, but I'm going to complain about it again because we went to one of those, uh, you know, nice restaurants, you know, a restaurant that, you know, doesn't advertise on TV or have a jingle that goes with it and doesn't, uh, you know, hound you with some sort of special deals and, you know, a nice restaurant where they give you a big menu and all the number, all the prices are just written in two little numbers instead of having .99 after that. Well, we went to one of those nice restaurants over the week, and guess what? Hard buns and cold butter. Uh, Hard biscuits, or bread rolls. You know, the rolls come out, and they're hard as a rock on the outside. I mean, literally, you could pound plaster with them, and the plaster's going to give up. The roll is not. And then, on top of that, when they bring out the butter, it's in a little bowl, and it's the little hard packets. So now I've got the hard butter in my hand, trying to warm it up to soften it up, and I'm using a circular saw to cut the roll in half. And then when I get it in half, you got to mush that hard butter into that roll and it goes all over the place and meanwhile you've got this hard thing that you've got to bite through. You know what, if you're a fancy restaurant, I mean, you know, really sin- sincerely, if you're a fancy restaurant, at least have a at least have a roll that you don't have to that you don't have to get a jackhammer to get through the side of it. And then why are you so worried about your butter spoiling? You're charging enough for everything else, just take out a couple of pats of butter in the little packets and leave them outside to warm up. Anyway, that's just one of my things about restaurants. Hard hard rolls and cold butter, you know what? I can go to Charlie's and get hot buns and soft butter for free, and I get a good cob salad there, and I can see that it's point ninety nine cents. Alright, there you go. New Year's upon us. Uh, Don't forget JDRF Auction. The only time of the year that we ask you to participate in any money or donate to anything or ask you or beg you for money for anything. JDRF Auction is coming up in uh, late March, early April. If you've got something that you'd like to donate to be auctioned off, please email me brian at pipesmagazine.com We'll get that started uh, probably the middle of March and then get everything off to Steve Fallon. So there you go. A uh, long show to kick off the year. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Ken Barnes for joining me and until next time.
2: Happy he's a who cares about the clouds when we're together, just sing a song and think about sunny weather. happy, happy Bum, bum, oh, again. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm
3: tired of being right.